Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast, a show created by an anxiety specialist and neuroscientist, me, that offers unique, practical, and actionable advice to help you understand what anxiety truly is and exactly what you can do to empower yourself to resolve it. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, an MD who suffered with crippling anxiety for 30-plus years, and traditional therapy from psychiatrists and psychologists really didn't help me feel better. And I also didn't like being on psych meds. In 2013, after burning out and leaving medical practice, I came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to heal my anxiety, I would have to do it myself. And that's exactly what I did, drawing from experiences with psychedelics and holistic healing and combining those modalities with my scientific academic background in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. Here on the Anxiety Arcs podcast, I offer a distinctly non-traditional and non-medical approach to understanding and healing anxiety. So despite the fact I'm trained as a physician, in no way is what I say and suggest to be construed as medical advice because none of the ways I use to resolve anxiety has anything to do with traditional allopathic medicine. From my own healing, I've created a distinctly non-traditional understanding and approach that helps thousands of people from all over the world understand and relieve their chronic anxiety. So if you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Anxiety Rx Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Russ Kennedy, a medical doctor, a neuroscientist who suffered with extreme anxiety for a long time and found a way out. This week, I want to talk about parents. Da, 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 parents. Always a loaded, always a loaded conversation when I talk about parents. Because today is Father's Day, June the 18th, 2023. Today's Father's Day. And as many of you know who listen to me, uh, my father was bipolar and schizophrenic and created a lot of chaos around our house. Grow, me growing up, created a lot of chaos for my mother, probably more for my mother than me in a lot of ways. And looking at him now, you know, he's been gone. He committed suicide in 1987. He's been gone a long time. And it, what I notice about this and what I notice with a lot of the people that I work with too, is that we tend to kind of have a one or two sentence explanations in our head, even if we don't kind of voice it, even if we don't really flush it out, you know, so my little one or two sentence explanation of my father was, I start off usually with, he was crazy, um, which is a bit derogatory, I, I admit. And I think there's a little bit of resentment in there because I felt like I deserved a better father in a way. And maybe I'll get into that. And today I've had some coffee. Um, I've been resisting doing this episode, as you might understand, because my father is my biggest wound in my life. So I think, as I was saying, I think we have these one dimensional descriptions of our parents, especially if we grew up with trauma, especially if that trauma uh, involved a parent and um, didn't even have to be abuse, abandonment, neglect, rejection, any of that stuff, we can just go through a parental mismatch where we're just not really connected. And I know Mel Robbins likes to attribute this parental mismatch term to me, but it's actually Nicole LaPera's term. So this parental mismatch that we go through is that our personality just doesn't quite jive with our parents. Now, I didn't feel a parental mismatch so much as that as much as my father was mentally unstable. Now, 
there were times where my, my dad was really connected to me. When I, before the age of 10, I don't have a lot of memories of him being a little nuts. But after the age of 10, I have a number of them. But before the age of 10, I remember him being very caring, very loving, very intelligent, and wanting to do the best for me. And I felt that. I felt that in his manner, I felt that he was trying to teach me things. You know, like hitting a ball and riding a bike and all the things that dads are supposed to teach their their sons. Um, he also taught me how to to work. You know, he had a job and he brought me into his job. My brother and I would uh, clean up the place that he worked at. And he really started to teach us the value of money at a very young age. So there was a lot of great things about my father. But as I was saying, I think we tend to go back into this kind of one-dimensional way of explaining, okay, this was my dad. My dad was crazy. He was unreliable. But there was lots of my dad where he was very loving, caring, attentive. He was never abusive or violent or anything like that. But when he would lose touch with reality or he would go into a deep, deep depression and I would watch this person who I love so much and idolized, you know, when I was very young, I idolized my dad as most boys do with their father. And I would see him drop into these horrible depressions where he just could, he literally was frozen in his bed. And I'm trying to figure this out. And I'm the oldest boy. So I kind of, I think the oldest boy has a real reflection of the, of the father. Uh, I think the younger boys do too, but the oldest boy, I think it's the, the most powerful reflection of the dad because, you know, you're kind of like next in line in, in the whole family structure, the whole family system is your, you know, number one son or whatever. So I really bonded to my dad a lot. We played a lot of snooker together. Uh, I, he was a great teacher. My dad was a fantastic teacher, very, very intelligent, smarter than me, but also crazy. Like genius and madness are really not that far apart, I don't think. So I had this description of my dad. If you ask me, you know, what was your dad like? Well, usually I will say he was bipolar and schizophrenic and uh, kind of crazy. And I leave out the part of him being loving, caring. Now, when I'm on podcasts and stuff, I will often bring that in. But I was noticing this last night because I was watching this show that had a father in it who kind of let their, their family down. And uh, it really hit me. Like, it really hit me the absence of my, my father in, in my family. Even though he was present physically, as I got older, as I got 15, 20, 25, he pulled back. Like, his, his illness just made him withdraw into himself. And he just wasn't really present for me. And then I kind of took over the role of looking after him, which... In a way, I didn't mind because I, I felt like when I was young, he really did look after me. He really did see me, hear me, love me, and protect me. But as I got older, I just felt like he wasn't there for me. And not that he didn't want to be. He just wasn't able to be. He was just too mentally ill to be able to look after anybody but himself. And he didn't even really look after himself all that well. So there was this loss, this real loss. And I think when we come from trauma we tend to make these kind of one or two sentence descriptions of our parents, which aren't really all that accurate in a lot of ways. It's sure, yeah, that's the most intense version of them. For me, the most intense version of my dad was him being up for four days at a time at a manic episode where nothing was a bad idea and playing the trumpet at 4 a.m. seemed like a damn good idea, but it wasn't. So I 
you know, on this Father's Day, kind of reflecting, you know, what did I get from my dad? Well, intelligence for one, um, tenacity, another one. Like I, I used to look at my dad as quite weak because of his mental illness, but he lasted so long. Like he, he had severe schizophrenia, like severe depression, really, really depths of depression. I, I think he tried to commit suicide three or four times, my mom told me. And he hung in there. You know, he hung in there for, for my brother and I, for Scott and I, because he was trying to do his best to hang in there for us. So the ironic thing is I looked at him as weak because he wasn't able to hold a job. You know, he, he couldn't really take care of himself that way, especially in the last part of his life. But really just to be able to hang in there and cling to life and cling to some pleasures, you know, um, seeing me graduate from university. He never really saw me get into medical school, which is, I write in my book, one of the most painful experiences of my life, because I really, really wanted for him to see me get into medical school because none, nobody in his family had ever gone to university, let alone freaking medical school. I really wanted him to see that. And as I say that, it still, it still chokes me up a little bit that he didn't see that. And I, I guess I kind of had this sort of you know, whoa, whoa, kind of spiritual thing. Like your dad did see you get into medical school. He was there. He was watching you. It's like, mm, maybe. I, I hope so. I hope so. But getting back to this original theme, and I'm going to branch out quite a bit today. I, I can tell this is going to be kind of one of those uh, stream of consciousness episodes. But I, I do like to think that he was there, that he saw me do this, and that he's seeing me do what I'm doing now because I wouldn't be doing any of this stuff, helping people with anxiety or whatever, if it wasn't for him, if it wasn't for the pain that I went through with him and my impotence at being able to help him. Cause that's one of the reasons I became a doctor was I don't want to be that impotent again. Like I want to help my dad and I couldn't. And I think if my dad presented today, you know, with the advancements they've made in psychiatry over the last 40 years, which isn't a lot actually, to be honest, but let's, let's leave that for another podcast. I, I don't think there's much anybody could have done for him. You know, he had severe emotional trauma when he grew up. His dad died when he was 10. His mother was abusive. We're not sure if, she, you know, she was like, you know, sexually abusive towards him or whatever, but we kind of have that feeling that that may have been a, a problem in there too, because, you know, there's nobody else in my family that has bipolar or schizophrenia. So it doesn't run in our family, but I think he got such a severe um, upbringing, severe trauma in his upbringing. And he was like an accident. He was like 15 years younger than the, the other kids. He was also, if you know my history, he was also born at a pound and a half, like three months premature. They brought him home in a shoebox. My Nana, the crazy, crazy, who was crazy. My, my Nana was crazy too. Um, they brought him home in a shoebox and they said, you know, don't expect him to survive, but he did survive. So, you know, I, I, I look at him now, like, man, he had to be so strong to just be able to handle all that pain, all the pain that he went through, um, all the depression, you know, all of the schizophrenia, all of that questioning your existence, not knowing reality, how disturbing that must've been for him, how painful. And then, of course, painful for me to watch as well. So it really came down to, again, making this kind of one sentence declaration in my mind as to what he was like. But really, he was much more dimensional than that. 
he had, you know, he's loving, caring, kind, intelligent, thoughtful. Uh, yeah, he could be manipulative as well. He could, but again, a lot of these things that he learned how to do, being passive aggressive, being manipulative, um, shoplifting, that's another story, um, were just ways of him getting his needs. And as I've said before, if we don't get our needs met in a adaptive way, we will find a maladaptive way of getting our needs met. And I think that's what happened with him. I think that's what happens with all of us to some extent. If we don't get our needs met as children, we will find a way that's maladaptive. We will find a defensive accommodation. We will find a coping strategy that will allow us to get our needs met, at least make us feel like we're getting our needs met. Excuse me. So again, how do you frame up your parent or parents? We tend, especially if we come from trauma, we tend to kind of give them a kind of a, a monochromatic one sentence description. For me, my dad was crazy. Uh, he was unreliable as he got older and kind of manipulative and sick. So that's kind of the, and, and also these one sentence descriptions tend to be like quite negative. And then my mother was, was kind of, I wouldn't say she was cold, but she certainly wasn't overly affectionate. There were no, I love you's from my mother. There was no real, Hey, you're doing a great job. There was no cheerleading or whatever. And I also bring up, you know, it's hard to give what you didn't get. And she didn't get any of that kind of stuff too. So as a parent, if you don't get something, it's really hard to kind of push that into your kids. And then there's other people who didn't get a very good upbringing and go the other way and give their kids everything, which has its own issues as well. So I tend to describe my mother as dutiful, you know, very responsible, but a little bit on the cold side. And I also realized that my mother spent most of her life in a deep state of alarm. And if you've heard some of my other podcasts, when we're in alarm, physiological alarm, cortisol, catecholamines, dopamine even, norepinephrine, epinephrine, if we're in these alarm states, we shut off our social engagement system. We shut off that ability to be loving and kind and connected and make eye contact and, you know, have a nice tone of voice, a nice prosody of voice, facial expression, body language, that, that, that sort of humanistic part that pulls us all together. When you're in alarm, that goes out the window. And that's one of the reasons why people have social anxiety, because when you're in alarm, your software for connecting with other people is offline. So why would you want to go into a party if you're, if you're not equipped to be able to be connected with people? So that's one of the reasons I think people have social anxiety as well. But getting back to my mother, again, it's going to be stream of consciousness today. You know, when I look at her now, like she's, she'll be 90 in like two months, you know, she's turned into more of a child. Now she's still kind of with it. She doesn't, she doesn't hear, hear very well, which is, makes it a lot harder as well. But, you know, I tend to frame her up, um, with this idea that she was cold and that's too, that's too harsh. Like she wasn't cold. She was just kind of distant. And at, but at points she could be quite kind. And, and if it came to, you know, we needed bikes for Christmas or whatever, even though we didn't have a lot of money in our family, you know, somehow she always found a way of getting the stuff that we needed. So she was very dutiful in that way. And that's, I think her Scottish background too, is that, you know, you're, you're expected to know that you're loved because you're given, you know, you're, there's a roof over your head 
and there's food in your belly. So if there's a roof over your head and there's food in your belly, you're loved. But we don't say that. Like, you never say that. And I think our parents often grew up in an era where self-awareness just just wasn't a feature in life. So they don't really look at themselves. They didn't really look at what they were doing. And as far as my mother goes, she was so busy looking after three males in the household. And um, one of them being completely nuts sometimes and having the chaos in that household. You know, like that's the thing. I think one of the other things that I've talked to about people to people is that what was, what was normal to you in your childhood, you will unconsciously replicate in your adulthood. Freud called it the repetition compulsion. So if you grew up with an alcoholic parent, the, the odds are that you pick an alcoholic partner are quite high, actually. Whatever was familiar to you in childhood, you will unconsciously gravitate towards in your adulthood. And you may bemoan that, you may, you know, I always pick the same person, um, it's, it's a really common pattern that once we realize, sorry about that, but we're getting renovations done in the house and this is the best I can do today. Um, once you realize that a lot of this, your, your program is put into you, you know, specifically by your parents and you're just, you're just acting it out. Like I create, I, for the, for the first probably 45 years of my life, I created chaos in my life with relationships with work, you know, there's not too many doctors that decide to sort of give that up or give up that income to go do stand-up comedy, you know, move to a different city and go do stand-up comedy. So I created a lot of chaos in my life. Now I look back on it. Now I can see. So I ask people, you know, what was normal in your childhood? Was being abused normal, familiar, at least familiar in your childhood? And how do you replicate being abused as an adult? How do you gravitate your, your friendships, your relationships towards that kind of abuse, or if you were abandoned as a child, you know, if you're a latchkey kid, how do you, how do you recreate that in your relationships? Now today talking about parents, but our parents really play a huge role in forming us. And, and there's a great saying that says we are raised by our grandparents, which is basically our, our parents, parents, their foibles and idiosyncrasies got put into their kids, which were our parents, and those same things were put into us. So we're raised by our grandparents. And I think one of the things that we really need to understand is that we need to be connected to our parents. And this triggers a lot of people because a lot of people had really bad parents. And I'm not saying you have to be connected to that person specifically, but can you be connected to a nicer part of, of a parent, because usually there's something in our parent that was redeemable. Some people have horrible, horrible parents and really, but even in then, even in then often we can find something different. So there is this thing that I, I look up sometimes it's called one stop for writers and then traits, positive traits. So you go down the positive traits, like adaptable, honorable, proactive, resourceful, that kind of thing. And you kind of think, okay, what was my parent like? Like, did they have any of these tape? You know, the second one here, adventurous. My dad was really adventurous. You know, when I was, when, especially when he was manic, you know, we used to live in Ontario and my dad decided when I was 10 years old that he was going to hitchhike across Canada. Now, I don't know if you know the topography of Canada, but Ontario, Toronto was kind of right in the center of Canada. 
And Victoria, British Columbia, where I live now, it's right above Seattle. So it's about as far away from Ontario as you get. So one day he decides that he's going to hitchhike across Canada to Victoria, BC. That's a whole story. That's a whole podcast in itself. But, you know, my dad was really adventurous, um, analytical. He was very intelligent. My dad was very intelligent, able to break things down. He used to play a lot of snooker and he would have these uh, pool table things printed out on just eight by 12, eight, eight by 10 sheets of paper, eight by 11. And he would draw these intricate sort of snooker patterns, you know, how to run 12 balls in a row or whatever, you know, so that's part of it. Playful, you know, he was really a playful guy, really silly, really. And, and I'm really silly and playful with Leandra. So, you know, I look at those things and I look at the, fe the features of him that, that I really loved. And this is not to whitewash it, to say, oh, you know, everybody, you need to love your parents. But just get out of that one-dimensional way of looking at your parents. Like when someone asks you to describe your parent, realize that you're going to go into a one-dimensional, likely a one-dimensional sentence or two that you've created in your mind. And through confirmation bias, anything that you recall will fit that one-dimensional picture. So most of what I recall when people ask me about my dad are the crazy times, the crazy trumpet playing, you know, the staying up for four days at once, the, the suicide attempts, that kind of stuff, which are intense. And our brains naturally kind of gravitate to the war, more intense things. But if I look at how playful my dad was, you know, just going through these, these, you know, these honest, another one, you know, he, uh, once my, my mother worked at the hospital and once she brought home a pencil from that was hospital property and he got, got upset, you know, he said, well, that's not honest. You don't, you don't take things from the hospital. I was a freaking pencil, man. You know, so, so looking at the characteristics of our parents in a more, I don't know, compassionate light and just seeing, you know, one of the great sayings is that you can't give what you didn't get. I think I mentioned that already. So if your parents didn't get something, it's very hard for them to give it as well. And then it's also very easy to blame a parent too. But often when you blame a parent, it was their parent that abused them or hurt them. And then the grandparent, their parent, you know, so where do you, do you go back to Adam and Eve? Like, where do you go? Where do you place the blame? Now, I'm not trying to excuse people that have had horrendous histories because there are horrendous histories, emotional, physical, sexual abuse. Not trying to whitewash that. And if you've had that, you know, I was talking to Cynthia before I did this, like, give me some hints on today. I'm going to talk about parents. And she was saying, you know, if you have those severe kind of parental influences in your life, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, you know, that's when you need help. You know, it's really hard to process that stuff on your own. And I think that that's, that's where it comes out, where you need to kind of see it, so you don't have to be it, allow it to be there, but also, you know, look at the positive side of that. Look at, because we're all, we're all incarnated just a little bit differently. We're all made with certain traits. And I think this is not to get too fruity on people, but you know, I think everything is consciousness. Everything is vibration. Everything is consciousness. So we, we are all incarnated into a certain thing. I was given sort of a uh, sense of humor, intelligence, uh, drive, you know, these are things that, that I was given. And I was also given a dad who was severely mentally ill. And I think as parents, sometimes we take responsibility for 
if our child shows up, like Jordan Peterson's daughter had severe juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, she needed two joint replacements. You know, and the guilt that you go through as parents when you see your child suffering, but often, and I said this in Ranjan Chatterjee's podcast that I just did last month in, in May of 2023, is that our kids have, a, have their own path. We can guide them, we can shepherd them to some extent, but our kids have their own path. They're gonna come out with their own illnesses, their own diseases, their own relationship issues, whatever. And it's not up to us to take responsibility for that. It's up to us to sort of help them through that, to see them, hear them, love them, and protect them, and help them through their traumas because their traumas aren't our own. Now, ironically, certain traumas do tend to run through families. But it's just not taking responsibility for them. You know, the four agreements, or uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, the four agreements are really important here as parents to be able, don't take anything personally, do your best. You know, there's just, there's four tenets of the four agreements that are really beneficial for parents. The other flip side of that, as far as, you know, one-stop copy for writers is the negative characteristics. So I look at the negative characteristics of, you know, my mother, my father. So here's, here's one from my mother, controlling. My mother can be very controlling. Uh, my mo mom can be very manipulative as well. And it's like, okay, looking at the negative side, can you find the opposite? Can I find the opposite of where she's controlling? Yeah, there was lots of times when I was a teenager where she kind of, she gave me a lot of leeway. She gave me a lot of ability to do my own thing, you know, and manipulative. She can be quite manipulative, but there's times that I can remember where she wasn't. So going into your parents and just looking at this one stop for writers thing and doing the negative and the positive traits. So find the positive trait in your parent for sure. And remember in, like stories, instances, that kind of thing of how they were positive because it does tend to chip away at that one dimensional uh, framework that we create for our parents that is probably not accurate, is probably the most emotionally intense part of them for sure, but it doesn't really fully describe them. And then when you go into the, the negative aspects that you can really see, you know, with, with a parent, um, needy, my mother's really needy. Like, so it's like, where is she not needy? You know, when she gets enough attention, when I visit her enough, which it's never enough, but I try my best to see her quite frequently and reassure her. Once she's been reassured, the neediness just kind of goes away. She doesn't need to sort of keep calling me, me or my brother. So it's really seeing the negative aspects of it and then saying, okay, what's the opposite of that? When is she not needy? When is she not oversensitive? It's another one that's here. When is she not oversensitive? Well, when she gets fed up, when she gets, uh, and I mean that in a positive way, when she gets filled up with con connection and love, a lot of that oversensitivity just drops away. So again, it's just a reflection of what they didn't get, what the parents didn't get. So I think it's really important to understand that, that we do have this confirmation bias. So when it comes to our parents and we look at them in this sort of one dimensional way, if, and this is true typically with, you know, parents that created some trauma in our lives when we were younger. I'm not sure how this works with, you know, good, connected, attached, attuned parents, because I didn't have that. 
But I think we do tend to look at them in this sort of one-dimensional role. And today being Father's Day, I really look into how am I as a father? You know, I think I'm pretty darn good, actually. Um, but how was my father? And did he do his best? And was his best okay? And his best was okay. Considering where he came from, considering the abuse that he came from, you know, he really handed down a lot of things to me that helped me today help you, help other people. I got that from him. I got that, that sense. I got my intelligence. I think, although my mother's very bright, bright as well, but my intelligence from him, my playfulness, my silliness I got from him, although my mother's pretty silly too. So it's, it's looking at your parents in a way that is more three-dimensional, that because there is this sort of part of our dopamine-driven brain, we want to be able to explain things. We want to be able to put into a filing cabinet. Yes, my mother was selfish. I'm not saying that for me. I'm saying that for some of the people that, I, that I've talked to. Yeah, but when were the times where she wasn't selfish? Well, I don't want to think about that. It's like, well, it wouldn't hurt to think about that. And what didn't she get that created the selfishness and her, the narcissism in the first place? Now, again, I'm not trying to excuse your parents because we all have a responsibility to our children to give them the best ability to be seen, heard, loved, and protected. And some parents just didn't do that. So it's not an excuse, but I do see that if you are at odds with both of your parents, your chance of running into a chronic illness in your 50s and 60s is very high, you know, like 80, 90% high. If you're at odds with one of your parents, it's about 60%. So we don't necessarily have to whitewash the parent, the parental role, but just creating the intention that our parent had certain traits and some of those traits were positive. My friend Mark Rolin wrote this book called They Didn't Start With You. And he has this, he has this saying that I just love. It's basically if, if your parent only gave you 2%, like on a tap, 2% love, put your cup under that tap 2% and fill up your cup with that 2%. The other thing he used to say is like, take their love as they give it, not as you expect it, which I always have thought has been a brilliant saying as well. So it's really understanding that on this Father's Day, I really don't like saying our parents did the best they could. It just sounds like a cop-out to me. But there wasn't a whole lot of self-awareness back then, as there is now. And I think it's understanding, seeing your parent in sort of a three-dimensional light, and taking that one-dimensional view and saying, how were they not like that? How were they not flaky? If you're, how were they not addicted? How did they do their best outside of those things? How were they not what we make them out to be in our own little confirmation bias to sort of, you know, make it all wrap together in dopamine? Like, it's like, we like having explanations for things. So for me, my dad was crazy. That, that's, the, that's, the sh that's the short version of my dad. Now, if I went into it, it's like my dad was crazy, but he was also very silly, very kind, very loving, and a great teacher. You know, that's a lot easier on my system than my dad was crazy. It really is. So on this Father's Day, 
I guess it's looking at our parents. And some people didn't have a father, like the father wasn't present and some didn't have a mother either. So I think it's just going in and kind of seeing where we can be the best version of ourselves and see where the good parts of us come from, because they also come from our parents too. And see if we can embrace that in ourselves, not necessarily forgiving your parents or whatever, but just embracing the part of you. It's a good start to embrace the part of you that is good that you got from them. You know, my anxiety, I probably inherited both from my dad and my mom, a lot, a lot from my mom. And it's easy to resent, you know, something that really created a tremendous amount of pain in your life. It's easy to resent that part of the parent who had that particular trait too, but they didn't ask for it. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make it all better. I'm not trying to say, oh, we should just forgive and love our parents because, but I do see that people who are rejecting of their parents, both parents especially, wind up having pretty significant chronic illnesses as they get older. And if you can just make the intention to accept and even embrace or love the parts of you that you got from them, even if 95% of them was terrible, the 5%, so fill your, fill your cup up with that 5% of the parts of you that they gave to you, that's actually good. That's kind of how I do it. And it's funny, when you do that, you start seeing more good in them. Because again, it's all about developing that connection with them, that emotional connection with them. Because we're not meant to be islands. We're not meant to be cut off from our parents. It's meant to be a linear process and the adults are supposed to give to the kids. And then when the kids grow up and be, become adults, they give to their kids. That's the way it's supposed to run. Now, often that's not how it happens, but if we can look at our parents in with the traits that are in us, that we got from them, that we really like, that we really embrace, I think that creates a bond that allows us to have the best possible mental and physical health. So happy Father's Day, happy Mother's Day, and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening, and if the Anxiety Rx podcast resonates with you, consider getting my book, also coincidentally called Anxiety Rx. Or you can follow me on any of the social media platforms at The Anxiety MD or my website, www.theanxietymd.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you the next time on The Anxiety Rx podcast.